I walked in, there was an awful picture of me that was shown. Um, I was out, so um, I hope you can all get that out of your mind, whatever it was. And so we are in this series on grace and race, um, which is an ambitious thing to bite off. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Thanks. Thanks. I know where you live. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I wasn't always this handsome, you know, as we've been planting this church. <laughs> no, um, so, uh, yeah, what was I talking about? I have no idea. We were about this grace and race uh, thing, which is an ambitious uh, topic to enter into, to bite off. And so I want to set our expectations as we start off just to know that this is a journey. This is a conversation that's going to be going on for quite some time. And so maybe this today is one deposit in that direction. And I know last week... While I was gone at a wedding, we had another deposit in that direction. I was so excited on Monday to uh, get the podcast. You know, we have a podcast of our sermons, so you can look that up. But I was getting the podcast and listening to Pastor Dante's sermon and so excited to hear um, how he really just shared on a number of levels. In particular, I loved uh, at the end his, his uh, just kind of bringing it to a conclusion with some of his own personal um, experiences, and that was just so powerful. So if you can get a chance to listen to that. You know, we have... In terms of our denomination, we have one of, you know, the people that has walked in this space um, as long as just about anybody in our group of churches. We have about 1,400 churches across the United States. And for nine years, Pastor Dante was the director of African American ministries for that entire group of churches. And so he's been everywhere all across the country. He's had thousands and thousands of conversations on the subject of race, and he has delved into the complexities of it. And a lot of who he is and what he ministers out of now comes from that experience. And so we're just phenomenally blessed to have, um, to have his presence in our community to help us navigate, right? <laughs> to, navigate, to navigate the complexity of it. And I, and I keep learning and growing from, from our conversations and the wisdom that he has in that. And so I hope that will continue to be the place. So, so now the white guy, the white male stands up to talk about race, right? So we all, we all look forward to that, right? But actually, um, and as I've been having this conversation, uh, it's true that actually we all have a journey with race. And over the last two, three weeks, I've got a little note on my phone. And I've just been, I've just been um, as I remember things, writing down sort of what is my journey with race, and then trying to see some of the themes that are there and the experiences. Um, so what I wanted to do in, in the time that we have today is I want to I wanna do like a, a quick kind of tracing the arc of race in the Bible. Um, and even that statement's filled with complexity. But I want to I do a quick sort of tracing of that. Uh, because I want to make sure that we're rooted in some really uh, strong biblical truths that I think we'll see there together. And then I want to spend some time, because once we, once we understand that, then we have to kind of work it out, right? We have to work it out in our lives. And what I'd like to do is spend some time sharing with you some of my journey around the subject of race. And um, again, as your pastor, I think what I'm coming to understand is you need to, un you need to see, you need to know my heart around this issue. And my experiences, because out of that is going to be part of our journey together. And the same is true 
for you, and I, and I hope this will take place a lot in our home groups this week, that, that we're kind of using almost like the same thing we do with evangelism, where we do pray, you know, ask, bless, share, tell. We can almost use that similar framework as we share our journey of race together. And there may be some space for you in your home groups this week to kind of share your story, to, to think about what are those high moments that shaped you as you think about this subject. As we get to know what those moments are, then it really, if done well, it can bring us together and give us a greater appreciation for the differences that we bring. When, when you're talking about a multi-ethnic church, and this is a multi-ethnic church, when you're talking about bringing together people in a multi-ethnic church, you've got so much complexity. You've got so many stories. So many assumptions can be made. And when we share our stories, we start to get underneath some of those assumptions and to understand what's really going on. So I'm going to try to model that a little bit today uh, after we look into some of the scriptures. And I'm sure I'm going to mess it up because I'm, I'm a person who's in process, right? Just like all of us. And, and that's part of the thing with this conversation is that sometimes... We feel so much pressure to get it right on the first try that we don't say anything. And we shut down the entire process because we feel that intensity and that pressure. And in a church where we have the grace of God over us and presumably the grace of God on one another, we ought to be able to create a space where we can mess up and have conversations and change our minds and understand things in a more profound way as we work it out together. So that's what I'm hoping and praying for. So what I want to do, though, is trace the ark really quickly. I'm going to go all the way back. Uh, if you'd open up to Genesis 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll pass one to you. Uh, please don't be shy uh, about uh, having a Bible. We'd love for you to be able to follow along. Genesis 1. Uh, we're going to just going to drop down in a couple of spots in Scripture. And basically, the ark uh, of race in the Scripture has to do with creation, redemption, and then this word consummation, which may be less familiar to you, but that's like the fulfillment, the end times, when everything is as it should be. And so just briefly to plunge into the scripture in those three areas um, will be uh, what, what I want to share with you. So in the very beginning, uh, you know, God is creating the earth in Genesis 1, creates the light, creates the water uh, and the sky, and then the land and all the plants, and then fills the, the, the you know, the, the lights with the sun and the moon, and then the water and the sky animals, and then the land animals, uh, and then as part of that, then at the end of that, on the sixth day, comes the creation of humankind. So verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we'll stop there. So let me just say this. All people are created in the image of God. You say that with me? All people. Okay? All people. say. So, so we can do this. I know we're... Some churches would do this really well. We're going to learn into this. All people, All people are, created are created in the image of God. God. Okay? There's not an asterisk in your Bible next to that to say at the bottom of the page, but some are more, right? Some are better. Some are superior. Some are supreme. There's nothing like that. All people are created 
in the image of God. And this is the foundation of our understanding about the differences between people in our world. And science is catching up to sort of affirm what we're saying. So was reading uh, in the Genome Project, and of course we're discovering more and more, and we're discovering that, for example, two Europeans might have more in common with an Asian person from a genetic perspective than they do with each other. Okay? So the differences are so superficial that, that they don't even hardly register on the, on the radar. All people are made in the image of God. And efforts to try and say that it's otherwise fail. So this is the foundation of what we hold to be true. Now, we could say because of science is corroborating a lot of this, but we know it because of Scripture. We know it because of Scripture. Because God said at the very beginning, all people are made in his image. And that is the source of our value and our dignity and our worth right there. Okay? So it starts off with that great strong statement about all people. Then, of course, things uh, go to hell in a handbasket uh, through the next few chapters as uh, Adam and Eve sin. And uh, it's like, you know, the Tower of Babel. And we could spend some fun time talking about that in relation to this subject. But the question then becomes, what's God going to do with this now decayed, broken, fallen, sin-tinged world? And the, the answer is, he's going to call this man named Abram. And so in verse 12, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 1, if you would turn over there, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Okay. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen to this part, underline this part in your Bible. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was never God's intention to go after one nation only. It was always his intention to go after all nations through the one nation. Okay? His, but the goal was never just one. It was all. It was all. Now, this command, this, this ministry was entrusted to the Jews, right? And they fell down on the job. They did not complete the job to go to all nations and make the hope of the goodness of the grace of God available to all nations. And that's so much the story of the rest of the Old Testament. And in there, you, you see the race issue coming up too because people in, in history have said, well, um, because, you know, the Jews, they were, they were less than or they messed up. Uh, and, and, and that's not the point. The point is, is that like all human beings, the Jews were filled with sin. And so they did the selfish thing that anybody would have done. They hoarded the blessing for themselves and did not carry out the mission that God had given them. But that's not a statement that the, the Jews then are less than, which has been said uh, in the history of the church because of their failure to do that. It's more a statement about the nature of humankind and our failure as human beings to answer the call of God in our lives. Now, so, so they failed to do the, the, the deed, and then um, we turn over into the New Testament. So God says, okay, I'll come to earth, and I'll take care of it. So turn over to Ephesians. Um, if you need to look in your table of contents, you can. Somebody want to call out the page in Ephesians chapter 2 um, when they find it in that blue Bible that we have? Feel free to just call that out. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and so 
God comes, steps into the world, uh, taking on flesh, um, and does what we couldn't do because of our own sinfulness. Uh, and that is to reconcile us to himself. Now, I'm going to pick this up in verse 12 of chapter 2. And it's speaking uh, about the Gentiles. So if you want to see where race occurs in the Bible, you think about Jews and Gentiles. So um, race as a construct that is laid over people groups where sometimes it's very unclear what the differences actually are between the groups, but it becomes a social structure that gets placed on top of certain groups and you've got Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are everybody who's not a Jew. So it would include all different, what we would view as all different kinds of races. But in the scripture, wherever you see the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, that's where you've got the racial dynamics playing themselves out. And that's where you can learn lessons on, on how this is supposed to go in God's economy. So here in Ephesians 1, 2, we've got um, uh, this conversation about, uh, first of all, uh, God has, has reconciled individuals to himself, and now we're getting into the communal part of it. So chapter, verse 12 says, Remember that you, speaking to all the Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So because the Jews didn't carry out the mission that they'd been given to go to all people with the message of God's grace... Because they hadn't carried that mission out, then, they were, then the Gentiles were separated. But now, in Christ Jesus, so God did it himself, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. You, you see that there? You know how much we long for peace between the nations? Right? Between different ethnos, between different people groups, between different... It says here that he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So there's not Jew and Gentile anymore. There's one. So making peace. Kind of how it's supposed to be from the beginning. There's one. And now there's one uh, after the separations have occurred because of what Jesus has done and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing, that's such a strong word. But that's what needs to happen with hostility is it needs to be killed. Okay, so killing the hostility, which Jesus did in himself. He took it all into himself. So there's a dynamic here where you've got people being reconciled to God, which is the first part of chapter 2. And the, the process of reconciliation to God is interesting because um, there is a positional reconciliation that takes place. And, and so much of chapter 1 in Ephesians is about that. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are positionally uh, one with Jesus. Okay? That's who you are. Now, there's also the practical oneness, which is the outworking of that oneness. And that's what we're doing through the process of sanctification we're learning how to live in oneness with Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we suffer, that God allows us to suffer. That draws us closer to him. And we, we find that we're living in greater unity with Christ in a practical sense, 
you know, because of what we're going through. And a lot of the way this world works, that's kind of what's, what's happening. Over time, we're learning to become one. Now, we are one, but we're learning to become one, right? And the same thing happens on the horizontal plane. When Jesus did his work, everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we're one. We're the same family. It's, it's, it's very clear. It says uh, in verse, let's see, which one is it here? I think it's 17. Um, uh, no, a 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens. Okay? That's the reality. We are that. But we're, that's the positionally we're one. But we're working out in our relationships in our community the practicality of it, the, the practical oneness. We are positionally one because of what Christ has done, and we're working out the practical oneness. And that's where all the messiness is. But it should give us great confidence that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the positional oneness. We know it's already there. It's possible because of the work that Christ has done. So we don't start off on this task with hopelessness. We start off on this task with great hope because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And basically what he did is he said, look, all y'all are sinners and you're separated from God because of it. So you're all the same. See, you're image bearers and you're sinners. All y'all. Whatever race, whatever ethnicity, whatever language. It's the great leveler. And he says, I've come to reconcile you to God. All of you with the same act of going to the cross and dying there and atoning sacrifice for your sin. And in doing so, now I've made you one. Because none of you is better than the other. You were all separated and alienated. And then because you're sinners, you're getting at each other and trying to make a big deal of minor differences between you. And so there's this mess, and I've solved it all on the cross. Okay? So now we're working that out. And that's what this life entails, is the working out of that. And I just wonder, so I jump down um, to verse 6. This is the mystery and, and Pastor Dante references this verse a lot in his work and ministry around the subject. This is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This is the mystery of Christ. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Do you ever wonder sometimes if, if God maybe decides to stir things up just to kind of get us to really get it? And I just wonder, when I think, of, you know, God could have made a world where everybody looked exactly the same. Wouldn't that have been easier? Because in our sinfulness, we wouldn't have taken the differences and then tried to power up on each other, right? Or exclude each other. You know, we wouldn't have done that. Because we wouldn't have... So, but something in this, God allowed a world like this to come into being where there is these differences. So I think so we would have to grapple with it. And it's in the grappling with it that so much of the good stuff comes. Now, gosh, that's not to deny all the monstrous pain that is associated around this, with this topic. But there's also, if you've been in that conversation with somebody you love and you're getting to the root of some of the issues around race and you're seeing things differently and you're understanding and the light bulbs are going off, there's something glorious and beautiful and sweet about that that reflects the creativity of God 
and the wonder of God. And, and that's where the story in the Bible goes next, right? So if you turn to Revelation 7, 9, um, go all the way back to the back of the Bible, Revelation 7, 9. This is the ark uh, through the scripture, Revelation 7, 9, where it says, uh, this is the picture of heaven. After this, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who made it all happen. And so that picture of the diversity of God's creation, of diversity of humanity together worshiping, doing life for all eternity, embracing and enjoying the differences because what those differences do is they communicate something glorious about the creativity of our God and the wonder of our God. That's the trajectory. Now, again, there will be a day when that is perfect and we won't have to have, you know, conversations about multi-ethnicity because it will, be, it, will be per, it will be in its perfect state, but we're not there now. So we're on a journey, and we're tr- but, but that's our true north. That vision of the heavenly vision in Romans 7 is our true north. That's what we're moving towards. And we have, we have the hope of knowing it was God's original attention, intention. We're all made in the image, and that when we couldn't do it, then he redeemed us all, and that that is the true north for us. So that's what we work towards. And part of the way we work towards that is to share our lives. And there's something beautiful that God weaves in the community when we share the experiences that we've had around the subject of race. And so um, I thought I would take a few minutes to walk you through a little bit of my journey. And I hope that maybe this will be helpful as, I, as you look at me as somebody that you're, tr- you're, you're wanting to allow shepherd them, even in some of this area, because I'm going to share kind of what my experiences have been, and then I'm going to share some of my growth edges on this subject that I see, and maybe there's ones I don't see. I'm sure there are. Um, but, then, but then I also hope that this can be a little bit of a model for how you might have a conversation with the people in your home groups, with people in this church, where you might be able to, to, to open up, um, because it's in the, the real stuff of what's actually happened in our experiences where we can then go deep and and, and allow the grace to penetrate. Um, so I don't even know if I'm going to do this very well, okay? I'm kind of nervous about it. Um, and I'm probably going to say, I'll probably leave out stories I should have put in and, and put in stories I should have left out. So, but this is, in this conversation, this is where we need the grace, right? We need the grace of God to cover us and to know that it's not one and done, that this is a journey that happens over time. So my earliest memory around this would be I was about probably four or five years old. My first best friend was an African-American girl named Christy who lived across the street. And we played, and I, remember, I don't remember much about us hanging out except that I just remember loving Christy and wanting to hang out. And my mom tells a story like this. One day we were sitting in the pool, and I said, we're sitting in the little kiddie pool, and I said to Christy, why are you so black? And she, she said, I don't know. And she said, why are you so white? And I said, I don't know. And then we kept playing. <laughs> so, so that was my first kind of foray. Now, around that time, 1977, the miniseries Roots came out. 
Some of you who are older will know about this. This is a story of um, an African-American family, the African family coming to the United States, slavery. Um, I was six years old, and my parents were watching, and I didn't really realize how much my dad, especially, but also my mom, how much they were bridge builders in this area of race until I started to write out my story. Because every memory I have of them around this subject is their just wholehearted desire, and this is in the 70s, to change things from the way that they had experienced them and to engage in the conversation and to do what they could. And one of the things they did in that, you know, was we watched Roots. And I was six years old, and I watched this, this show with them. And they let me watch it, age six. And it was traumatizing. Like, seriously, to see the slaves on the ship, you know, and the chains and the hell on earth, to see that at age six, I still... But it was good. To be, it was the right kind of traumatizing. Because I needed... I, I remember ex- experiencing somewhere around that time, like... This is awful, but I'd rather know it than not know it. So two experiences from my childhood then. We moved to San Diego, and my first best friend in San Diego was Luis Mendoza, who had been in the United States for two years. He was 13, I was 12. He was a year older than um, he should have been in in seventh grade. Maybe he was 11 and 12, because um, he had moved from Mexico. And so we... um, Spent time, all the time together, and Luis was an amazing kid. Um, didn't speak English that well, but we were like two peas in a pod. And I would go with them to do all their family things because he was the only one in the family who spoke English. So at age 12 and 13, I remember sitting in a car dealership, and he's wheeling and dealing with the car dealer, okay? And I'm like, okay, who's superior here? I mean, this kid is 12 and he is wheeling, dealing in the car. Like, I'm, like, learning how to make my bed at home, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing. And uh, to this day, it's funny, he's a very successful real estate agent in San Diego, which you can, you can imagine. Um, and, and crazy, he came to faith later on. And the 20th anniversary of our, of our high school, we got to the next Sunday, we went to church together and took communion, one of the sweetest moments of my life. Um, so Luis is my best friend. And then from that... We went into this high school, which uh, in San Diego, it was, at the time, it was supposedly one of the most diverse high schools in the United States. Um, So I went to high school at a very diverse high school, certainly still is in San Diego. And there's two stories. And this is where it gets a little little, um, not so nice, maybe. Gosh, I can't believe how fast time goes. All right, I'm going to have to speed this up. So um, I was on the basketball court playing basketball, um, stepped on a guy's shoe, scuffed it up. He pulled out a toothbrush and said, clean my shoe. And there was a racial thing going on there. And I said, I can't do that. Now, you got to understand, I'm in ninth grade. I weighed 96 pounds in ninth grade. So um, I was shaking in my boots. And um, that went on, and the bell rang, and it kept going to the point of almost breaking out into a fight. And then I went home, and he said, the last thing he said was, tomorrow... You know, this is how it always happens, right? Tomorrow, you know, it's going down. And so I remember spending that whole night, like, in panic, waiting for the next day. 
And you know what? This is when I learned how to pray. This is the first prayer I remember <laughs> ever being answered. Is I prayed all night. Like, and then the next day I got to PE, and it was like everything just, just, he just totally forgot about it, never said a thing about it. And I was like, see, there is a God. And, and then fast forward to my senior year in high school, sitting in a restaurant with four friends, and a, a, an ethnic gang comes in, not African-American, not actually one that you would ever realize. We, I'm telling you, this was the most, we had gangs about, of ethnicities you didn't even know existed. And they had gangs. And this one came in and walks up to my friend and starts punching him in the face. And I think he was trying to get into the gang. And that breaks out into a huge fight. The police come, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been in that kind of environment. Um, went off to UC Santa Barbara. And um, two things that happened there, uh, three things. I went to Spain. And I remember sitting at a train station. And a gypsy person who was begging walked up to me and asked me for money. And I was sitting against the wall, and I remember it so vividly. I didn't look at him because I didn't want to give him money. And I just sat there and ignored him completely, and he kept asking. And then finally, he smacked the top of my baseball cap. And I looked up, and he, said, he went like this. And then he walked away. And I sat there stunned because he had called me out. You don't have to give anything to anybody but you have to look them in the eye because they're made in the image of God. So from this day, it's very important for me as much as I can. When I walk by somebody, I might not be able to give them something. I might choose not to give them something, but I will look them in the eye and tell them that I'm not going to. Because there's something about the image of God there that's being upheld when we continue to look each other in the eye and affirm our humanity. And that was a hard lesson to learn. And I'm sure I'm still learning it in many ways. I went to, um, I was part of the UCSB Gospel Choir. Um, got to meet Bishop Ulmer, who I would later learn is probably one of the greatest living preachers of any race, African American, in the country. And, um, and then I went, my last two summers I spent on a Native American uh, Yurok tribe and the Karu tribe reservation in Northern California. Spent the whole summer, both summers, and had kids coming from all over um, to be part of a camp there. They were, this was Methodist church, so we weren't proselytizing. I don't even, I don't even think the gospel was very present in the whole thing. But uh, we were working on homes and, and, and building, and I'm sure there was a lot that was wrong and messy about that, but I did spend two summers and got to know a bunch of Native Americans um, and was in their house and spending time with them, went to their religious celebrations and experienced that. And it was in that moment that I got my call to ministry when I was on the, the Yurok tribe. And that's why I went back there for my sabbatical to visit again and to experience that. Ended up at seminary in Trinity. Uh, I had never been to the Midwest. I'd never been to the South. Walked on campus and was stunned that the entire campus was white. And I felt claustrophobic because I had never experienced that before. So I immediately found the African-American student group and started going to their meetings. And there was about six of them. And, and this was during the time of O.J. Simpson, Simpson. And I've shared this story before. But one of the most poignant moments in my life was reading the prophets with those African-American brothers 
as they shared with me and with everybody there, their experiences of being pulled over driving while black, as they called it. Okay? They made me the secretary of the African-American student group. I said, have you seen me? They said, yeah, but you're here with, your, you're with us, you're walking with us. So then when I would go to apply for churches afterwards, at least one church thought I was African-American. So I don't know how many other cases that happened in. Um, I came to East Oakland, went to Hershey, nothing happened there of any racial. It was like all white, and we had to get out of there. Um, And so we came to East Oakland, lived in East Oakland, two stories. My son was on a baseball team. He's the only white kid in East Oakland, so we would go. And nobody ever said anything. He never even, I don't know if he even noticed, really. We'd go to the baseball field, and it's so great. He's sitting there, there's the white kid, and then we're in East Oakland. This is during the time that Oakland had the highest murder rate of any city in the United States. Uh, and so, oh, I forgot one story. I'll have to go back. Um, they had the highest murder rate of any city in the United States. And so uh, I joined the pastors of Oakland. It was the same. It was like the other thing. And um, 40 African-American pastors in uh, pastors of Oakland and a couple of white pastors. And they made me the chaplain. Okay. Now, they were doing this out of kindness to me. To, to send a signal, you're welcome to be with us, okay? One of the older guys said, <laughs> he, we're going to make Pastor Hoffman the chaplain. And this real old crusty guy goes, why does a group of pastors need a chaplain? <laughs> <laughs> and this is the worst part, is being a chaplain meant that you closed out every prayer. So at the end of every meeting, we would be praying. And, and a lot of these guys were charismatic, Right? And so we would be praying, and if there's one thing, they, they could pray. And, I mean, the roof would be blown off of this thing. And then at the very end, it would be Andrew's turn. <laughs> now, you know me. Like, you know, I'm not Esther. You know, I'm not. <laughs> so, like, I was just shaking in my boots every time that I was going to end this meeting. And just, like, the wind was going to go out of the entire thing. You know, but God uh, got, us, got us through that. But the, the chance that we had to, to partner with them and to have a worship service in front of City Hall in Oakland for all the victims, all the families of the victims that had been murdered in Oakland in that year. And I was, I was part of planning that thing and sitting on the platform thinking, what am I doing here? And yet God had me here to watch this, and I was so humbled and stunned to see what God was doing in these families um, and to be a part of that. Um, the other thing is that when I was in seminary, I looked on the job board, and the Messianic Jewish congregation had a job opening for a youth pastor. And so two years of my seminary I spent at a Messianic Jewish congregation. We met on Saturdays. We marched in with the Torah. We blew the shofar. We prayed in Hebrew. We sang in Hebrew. Uh, we never said Jesus. We always said Yeshua. We never said Christ. We always said Messiah. Um, that kid that I often tell you about, that I, the, my first baptism ever, ever, where he went under the water, and there was a dry spot on his head, and so I was really stressed. And, like, he came back up, and I was like, oh, no, I messed up the baptism. Well, the, the actual thing about that kid was disowned by his father after being baptized. So not only did he have a dry spot on his head, but he was disowned by his father um, for, for becoming a Christian. So walked with him through that, through that process. Here's what I'm trying to say. I, I have a lot of areas to grow in, um, but this is my journey. And what I'm trying to say is that this matters a lot to me. And one of the areas where I have to grow in is figuring out how to bring all of that experience 
and to bear in my role as pastor of this church. And I was so encouraged this last week. We were at the Mosaic Multi-Ethnic Church Conference, and these African-American pastors were sitting there talking about how hard it was during the police shootings to stand up in front of the church and speak about it without it becoming just absolutely controversial and creating rifts all throughout the church. And I remember that season, and I think part of why I've backed off is because of that season. I remember there would be Sundays where I would spend three hours figuring out what I was going to say in front of this congregation, and I would say it as carefully and as clearly as I could. And one family would leave, and somebody else would come up and say, you did it wrong, from opposite sides. And it became very challenging. It was a very challenging season. And so these last two years, I would own that I've pulled back on this subject in some way. Because it's been painful, and it's been controversial, and I haven't known, and it was so good to hear that I'm not alone in that. There are other lead pastors who've had a really hard time navigating in a multi-ethnic church. What's happened in our country and the polarization that's happened over the last years, it's been incredibly challenging and painful. So that's a growth edge for me. I need to learn how to do that better. I need to continue to dig into my heart. I still have areas in my heart where I, without even realizing, I'm, I'm, I'm making racial judgments that are more harmful than helpful. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're not having that happen in your life at all, I just want to challenge you to really ask yourself that question. I was with um, John Perkins, who's 89 years old this week, one of the leaders of you know, this whole multi-ethnic church movement has done more, you know, than some, you know, I mean, just amazing man, African-American, 89 years old. He said, you know what the problem is? It's our hearts. He said, I'm still, as I get closer to God, he's 89 years old. I mean, this is the kind of guy you're, you're hanging around, you just want to let every word drop and catch it, right? Because he's got so much experience and wisdom. And he's standing there saying, God is still at work in me, rooting out my blackness in my heart. Not racial blackness, sorry, if I... This is the confusing thing, right? The darkness, the sin in my heart, okay? He's saying that. And if he says that, I think probably we're still in the journey too. So to have that kind of authenticity and honesty about what we're really thinking, what are the, the things that we, maybe we didn't realize, that's, where, that's my growth edge. And I'm asking, inviting you, especially those of you who think you don't have any growth edge there, to get on that journey as well. So what was it? It's an understanding. I'm learning about what does it mean. I need to learn what does it mean to be an integrationist church. We are essentially an assimilationist church, meaning basically this is a white culture church in many respects. But what does it mean to actually be an integrationist church where all the different races have a say in how we do things? Or I don't know. I don't even know if that's the right answer. But what does it mean to appreciate, to integrate all the different cultures and dynamics that um, we have here together in a way that honors God and, and points to that Revelation 7-9 vision. So heart, um, my head, I, I, I'm doing reading. I need to continue to understand the history. I, you know, one of the things my wife did in such a beautiful way, homeschooling, is she had us listening to um, um, Equino, you know, the whole, we, the kids heard the whole story this guy in the 1700s who wrote, African slave, who wrote down his, his journal of everything that happened to him. We listened to that whole thing. So I, I, 
I've been blessed. My wife blessed us, blessed our kids with those kinds of things. But I still need to dig in deeper and learn more and understand the history better, be able to articulate it more clearly. And that's, what I, that's, that's my job that I need to, to work on. So heart is continuing to root out that um, sin of racism where it appears. Uh, my head is understanding the history better, learning what a multi-ethnic church really looks like, and then figuring out how to use my voice. The story of the rich young ruler comes to, keeps coming back to my mind in this. Okay, so say you've done everything right. You, you, you've been on that path, which is never true of anybody, but the rich young ruler says that, right? So then what does Jesus call him to? He says, okay, take what you have and use it now. Use it for others. And so that's part of my learning and my journey right now, and I think it's probably a part of many of ours right now, is to take what we have and to use it for others. I'm going to stop there. Um, and I've already gone way too long. People say, why, why should the church have any say in this whole thing? Like, isn't the world already all about this? You go on YouTube and watch 15 videos about microaggression right now, and you could learn every kind of microaggression about every kind of microaggression that there is, right? Well, here's the difference. This is what the church brings to actually make the change in people's lives. That's what's missing because sin will win the day every time. If you trust the flesh to overcome it, you'll never overcome it. But if because of the work of Jesus Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're on the journey of sanctification, then we have the power at work inside of us to make the kinds of changes that have to be made so that we can, in practical ways, be one with the kind of oneness that reflects that we're already one in Jesus Christ. That's huge. That's huge. Just trust me, we can have this conversation out in the world as much as we want, but it's not going to ultimately fix people's hearts in the way that God can. So we're not sideliners in this. We need to ultimately be leading the way because we have the power in Christ. All right, I'm going to stop there. God, thank you for helping us in this journey. And just pray that anything I might have said that's unhelpful, you would strike from people's minds. Anything that I might have said that's helpful, you would sear into our hearts. Those things that you want us to know, you would help us to know. Um, we're going to take communion right now, Lord. And we thank you so much for giving us this great institution. On the night that you were betrayed, you took bread. And after you'd given thanks, you said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, you took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And the beautiful thing with that is that it's a, it's a picture of oneness. And so this, in this multi-ethnic church, with our brokenness and our baggage and our failure to do this well, um, we come to this table knowing that your grace covers us. So thank you for that. Thank you that we're covered in your grace that we can fumble and bumble and muddle along this journey together and we can grow together. And by your power, by your work, maybe you'll just create something in this church that the world could see that would be enticing, just like we read in John 17, that as your name is lifted up, that people will be drawn towards you. 
as they see we're one, people would be drawn towards the name of Jesus. Would you make that miracle happen, we pray in Christ's name. 